This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. This is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. Michelle Gelfand is a distinguished university professor at the University of Maryland, College Park, and author of a wonderful book called Rule Makers, Rule Breakers, How Tight and Loose Cultures Wire Our World. As a cross-cultural psychologist, Michelle uses field experimental, computational, and neuroscience methods to understand the evolution of culture and its consequences. In 2016, she received the Diener Award from the Society for Personality and Social Psychology, which honors a mid-career scholar who has made major contributions to social psychology. She also received the 2017 Outstanding International Psychologist Award from the American Psychological Association, the 2018 Outstanding Cultural Psychology Award from SPSP, and the Annalise Research Award from the Alexander von Humboldt Foundation. She is a well-regarded scholar and brings her considerable academic expertise to help us understand our own tight, loose mindsets, the degree to which we adhere to or are more comfortable flouting social norms. She observes that those who veer toward a tight mindset are stricter in their adherence to rules and they practice and value punctuality, order, and accountability. Those who are closer to the other end of the tight, loose continuum are more comfortable with ambiguity, creativity, spontaneity, and messiness. Michelle wants to help us understand the mindsets of those around us at work, at home, and in our communities. Her aim, as we discuss in this episode, is to help increase self-awareness as well as an understanding of others' perspectives so we can better prioritize what we truly value, convey this to others in a way that they can grasp, and come to negotiated agreements that honor the important contributions of those with both tight and loose mindsets. We discuss how tight and loose mindsets vary across national cultures, organizational cultures, as well as within families, and the critical role that perceived threats play in whether we veer toward a tight or loose mindset. So at a time when our world is increasingly threatened by climate change, when politics are so polarizing, and when some people are manufacturing what Michelle calls fake threats, it's a perfect moment to analyze how the perception of threat pushes us toward a tight mindset that can overvalue control and veer dangerously toward authoritarianism. Michelle's work on rules and our relationship to them could not be more timely. So now, get set to listen to and learn from 
Michelle Gelfand. Welcome to Work and Life. Thank you so much for having me. Just a pleasure to be here. Well, it's great to have you here. So let's let's just jump right in and start with defining some basic terms so our, our listeners understand what we're talking about when we refer when you refer to tight and loose cultures. Can you briefly describe what that what those terms mean? Sure. So I'm a cross cultural psychologist, so I study human behavior across the world and also within the 50 states and even in our households. Mm -hmm. And um, most of the time when we're thinking about cultural differences, we think about things like red versus blue or east versus west or Mm -hmm. rich versus poor. And as a psychologist, I wanted to kind of delve deeper to think about what are the underlying psychological reasons why groups vary. Is there sort of a gist that we can use, a, a language we can use to understand these differences more deeply? And it And what I found after about 20 years of research is that there is a more simple explanation in terms of group differences, and it has to do with how tightly or loosely we adhere to social norms. And the idea is that all groups for millennium have social norms. These are unwritten rules for behavior. Mm -hmm. Um, And without even knowing it, we follow them constantly. Like, for example, you know, we say hello and goodbye when we answer the phone. We know to put clothes on when we go out. Most of us do. We know not to have sex in movie theaters, that this is for a private Whoa. <laughs> well, most of you. Um, we right. know not to face backwards Depends and Depends on if you're in high school, I would say. But please <laughs> continue. Right. Sorry. You know, so we, we follow rules constantly. But what I found after a lot of research is that some groups are tight. They more strictly adhere to rules, and they have stricter punishments for people who violate them. And other groups are loose. They have more permissiveness. They're more lax. And this distinction um, actually evolves for good reasons. There's certain factors that cause groups to evolve to be tighter loose, and it has particular trade-offs for human groups uh, in all sorts of settings, whether it's national, state, organizational differences, and it even affects our own mindset. Our own mindset. By that you mean what exactly? What I mean is, you know, we all sort of fall on the continuum of tight and loose Mm -hmm. mindsets uh, for our own sort of personal reasons and historical reasons. I use in the book, Rule Makers, Rule Breakers, uh, one of the metaphors, delightful metaphors from Dahlia Lewick that talks about Sesame Street characters. And I think about tight individuals or people who have a tight mindset are more like the kind of uh, order Muppets, you know, like Kermit the Frog and, um, you know, and Bert. <laughs> and people who veer looser um, are more like the chaos Muppets, you know, like basically Animal or, you know, um, Cookie Monster. And, and we, so we vary even individually on how tightly or, or loosely we adhere to norms. The people who are, be, be are tighter tend to follow rules and tend to manage their impulses, and they like a lot of structure. But people mm-hmm. who veer looser um, tend not to notice rules as much. Um, they're more risk-taking. They tend to be more impulsive. And they also embrace ambiguity more. So it affects us even at the individual level as much as it affects whole nations. So these are mindsets that we, we learn, right? Uh, in the cultures and, and social groups that that we are reared in and socialized into. Exactly. That's right. Um, there's, uh, there's, I mean, any human being born into any given culture is going to learn a certain way of behaving that is acceptable or that's, not. That's right. You know, it's, it's really super interesting that uh, developmental psychologists have shown that even infants who don't have language ability yet mm-hmm. are starting to become aware of social norms. Amazing. And these experiments are really super interesting because they have infants interacting with puppets, and they're just observing puppets. 
And in some cases, the puppet is like violating norms. He's beating up other puppets or doing some things that are not very nice. In other cases, the puppet's behaving nicely. And they simply look at who, which puppet does the baby reach for. And they consistently, again, this is just before even language ability, they reach for puppets that are behaving um, cooperatively. And by the age three, people are actively berating puppets that are violating norms uh, with language. So it's something we developed really super early. Mm -hmm. And it's super important for groups to have rules because it's remarkable how much they help us to coordinate and predict each other's behavior. In many ways, we can operate as a species without social norms. And so they're really this mm -hmm. incredible human invention that we designed. It's just that some groups veer tighter when it comes to social norms and other groups veer looser. It's, and it's useful to understand these distinctions. I think it was Clyde Cluckon, the great uh, cultural anthropologist, who said that we are like all other people, <laughs> like some other people, and like no other people. <laughs> and it's the, you know, it's being like some other people in groups, whatever those groups might be, that have their own distinct cultures that that shape our lives and, and our identities and, and how we interact in the world. In some ways, we're all humans. We're all part of the same human family. In other ways, each one of us is a distinct individual with a, her own personality and her own way of being. That's right. Uh, but then there are these group differences that are really powerful and can be sources of great strain and conflict and, of course, uh, great creativity. Mm -hmm. So what I, I think people are going to be most interested in is what the implications of these cultural differences are. And you have this beautifully parsimonious way of describing it, tight and loose, that is really easy to understand. What are, what are some of the big implications of this distinction that you draw? So I would also add to Cluck on this a great, um, great quote, is that culture is such a puzzle because it's omnipresent, it's all around us, mm -hmm. but it's totally invisible. We rarely recognize it, we rarely talk about it. Uh, we talk a lot about intelligence or emotional intelligence, but in my area, what we're really interested in developing is cultural intelligence. How do we sort of understand the ways that groups vary, why they vary, and with what consequence? In my training, uh, I was trained by Harry Triandis, who was at the mm -hmm. University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana. I'm a New Yorker, but, you know, I went all the way out to Champaign, Illinois, to work with Harry. Um, and I was trained to think about culture as quasi-adaptive, that it evolves for some reasons, at least that worked in the past. And one of the things I found with my research on tight loose is that there is actually a certain logic that can help us empathize with why some groups veer tight and some groups veer loose. Uh, in a study that I published in Science a couple of years ago, this was studying 33 nations and trying to think about how do we place them on a continuum from strict or permissive or tight-loose. And what I found was uh, really pretty interesting is that the groups didn't vary in terms of their geography or their religion or their tradition or their language, but they did vary on something pretty fundamental, which was how much threat they tended to have. How much uh, the threat they lived within in their in their environment in their lives how much threat did you say yes so like hmm. threat can come from like mother nature's fury you know lots of disasters and famines and um you know food scarcity um but it also can come threat from human nature mm -hmm. um in this study i measured things like how many times was a nation potentially invaded over the last hundred years um, how much population density is there in this country? Like, for example, Singapore has like 20,000 people per square mile packed into a tiny little space. And then you compare that to New Zealand, 
which is much looser in our data that has like mm-hmm. 50 people per square mile. And I, I've heard more sheep per capita than people. So there's a lot of different threats that groups have to face. And the logic is pretty simple. When you have a lot of threats, that they're collective threats, mm-hmm. you need stronger rules to coordinate to survive. Um, groups that have fewer threats don't need to coordinate as much, and they can afford to be more permissive. And I found that, you know, not just in the national level, but I found the same principle applies to state variation. Instead of looking at the states in terms of red versus blue, in one paper with Jesse Harrington, I rank ordered the states based on existing data on how tight or loose they were. And we find the same thing. The tightest states, which tend to be in the South and the Midwest, have many more natural disasters and food scarcity mm-hmm. and pathogens or disease threat. Mm-hmm. We find this also with like artificial societies when we try to model this with computer scientists. And we even find it recently in studies of pre-industrial societies when we code these very rich ethnographies that anthropologists have collected all over the world. We can see the same principle that those groups that experienced the same kinds of threats years and years and years ago mm-hmm. tend to evolve to be tighter. It's, it's not always the case. As an course, adaptive response to those threats. Exactly. Exactly. Quasi-adaptive. It's not the only factor that pushes us in terms of tight and loose. Um, for example, diversity tends to push groups toward looseness and debate pushes groups toward looseness. Israel is a great example of an exception in our data that's pretty threatened objectively, but that is pretty loose. There's pockets of tight and loose in the country, but there's a lot of rule breakers in Israel. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And um, they tend to be threatened, but it's overridden by the tremendous amount of debate that comes from Judaism, Mm -hmm. the diversity that's there. You know, the adage, there's three Jews in the room and ten opinions. <laughs> so and 12 religions. Of, exactly. And there's a lot of factors. So it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's just a general principle. It doesn't account for all the variation, but it's important to recognize that culture is quasi-adaptive and it can help us to empathize more with why, for example, Singaporeans can't bring large quantities of gum into the country. So what's the story with gum in Singapore, Michelle? <laughs> so, you know, it's a really interesting phenomenon because when we Americans look at this um, this rule that you're not allowed to bring large quantities of gum into the country. You can only use gum for medicinal types of purposes. We think it's preposterous. But, you know, as I mentioned, uh, Singapore has a very high population density. There's many mouths per capita. You can think about it that way. And in the mid-'80s, um, there was just a lot of problems because of the gum use. Uh, there were people throwing gum on the ground and mm-hmm. locking sensors and elevators and trains. And Lee Kuan Yew mm-hmm. at the time said, hey, guys, you know what? Like, we have too many people per square mile here to deal with this problem. The easiest way to deal with it is just to ban the tasty treat. And, you know, in that kind of context where there's so many people per capita, it makes sense that okay. having more rules now you know, I get needed. it. It was an adaptive response, and so, but that's a that's a culture that's tight and responsive to such uh, uh, demands or restrictions from top down. That's right. I think it's interesting uh, when you read Lee Kuan Yew's biography. You know, he was almost like a cross cultural psychologist. He analyzed the mm-hmm. context of Singapore. He realized there have a lot of threat, low natural resources, and he said, "Guys, you know, we need to evolve to be tight now." What's interesting is, you know, in in Singapore, you know, people are willing to sacrifice that kind of liberty or autonomy for more security in those contexts. And when you veer looser, it's hard to understand that balance because in the United States, even though we have tight pockets for many, many years, we haven't had that chronic threat where we're worried about Mexico and Canada invading us constantly or we're not worried about having massive famines 
um, and other natural disasters. Again, with you know, certain places do have more of them, but in general, we we are separated by two oceans from many places, and so we veer looser. And most times, and Herodotus said this too, the ancient historians that. People tend to be ethnocentric, all humans. You know, we sort of look at the world and think, well, our culture's not just good, it's the best one. It's the, it's the mm-hmm. correct one. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's where we get into a lot of problems nationally when mm-hmm. we don't sort of take the ecological and historical context of nations uh, into account. We can start being very judgmental. Well, and that that is something that I think is an important topic for us to dive into. But uh, before we get there... Uh, at, at the level of organizations, um, how does uh, tight and loose culture understanding uh, those distinctions, how does that help employees, the people who are listening? Mm-hmm. How can they use this idea as they, as they think about their own experience in organizations? How does it play out in the most profound or you know, high-impact ways? Yeah, well, it's, again, kind of really interesting that when we live and work in organizations for so many hours of our lives – but we, we don't always think about the underlying cultural DNA that is defining organizational cultures. And tight and loose certainly is one part of that cultural DNA. And the idea is that for the same reasons like, that nations veer tight and loose, organizations also can be predictably understood in terms of their rule orientation. So industries like airlines and nuclear power plants and manufacturing um, tend to veer tighter because they have a lot of coordination issues uh, and also lawyers, auditors, governments, you know, they also have a lot of public accountability and monitoring, which also promotes tightness. But then you have places like design and tech that have less of those kinds of threats, more mobility, more diversity, and they tend to veer looser. And I think it's important to think about our own match between our own tight and loose mindset and the organizations that we're in. That's one sort of just direct implication. So just to get an understanding of the preferences that you have based on your own history, because I'm, I'm inferring from what you're saying that the development of the tight or loose mindset is, is primarily a learned rather than innate that's right. aspect of, of, our, of our minds and yeah, our, our right. worldview. Is that that's right? That's right. That's right. We don't have you know, a lot of research that's in genetics as of yet. But, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the general idea is that, yes, it's a very much a learned attribute. And um, I think that what's interesting from an organizational point of view is, for example, when organizations merge, they often neglect these kinds of cultural of um, icebergs that lurk below. And I analyzed over 3,000 mergers and acquisitions mm-hmm. um, in terms of their performance. Um, and I talk about it in a recent Harvard Business Review article. And you can see that really big, tight, and loose differences, like the Daimler-Chrysler merger that you mentioned at the beginning of the show, really have a big price tag. And it's because the people and the practices and the leaders that define those two different tight and loose universes are really quite different. Of course. I'm sorry. Please continue. Yeah. I mean, the people in tighter cultures have more conscientiousness. Mm-hmm. They have practices that are more standardized and efficient and more formal uh, their leaders tend to be more independent and call the shots. And in loose organizations, people are more risk-taking and open, and mm-hmm. they have less formality and they're more flexible, um, more experimental, and they're more team-oriented in their leadership. And mm-hmm. we have research on that. And what's really fascinating is that when, pe- when organizations merge, even the recent Amazon and Whole Foods merger, mm-hmm. not so recent now, but it, you know, they really um, had a lot of compatible um, 
technical, strategic types of visions, but underneath the surface, they really had a lot of cultural incompatibility along tight and loose lines. That's where most mergers and acquisitions fail, is on the, the clash of cultures, uh, rather than on what looks like on paper to be, ah, beautiful synergy. Let's just make it happen without <laughs> without accounting for these important distinctions. And and so you were you were saying that it's useful from an employee perspective to have an understanding of one's own mindset with respect to uh, you know preference, let's call it, for either tight or loose. And you have a method for helping people to understand that mindset. And once they and I want to ask you about that, uh-huh. but once they have that understanding, how how can they then actually use it? to better their performance, their, um, their, their happiness and well-being, um, starting first at work, and then I want to move into the home environment. So first, how do people get to know what their preferences are? So on my website, um, I have a tight, loose mindset quiz, mm-hmm. and that's at www.michellegelfand.com. And then I further elaborate on the tight, loose mindset in the book, but it really can help people to see in general, you know, do you veer tighter or looser? Mm-hmm. And of course, uh, you know, this is something that dynamically changes across the daytime. I mean, when we're in a library or we're in a funeral or we're in a job interview, we are all veering tighter. We're, we're, we're attentive to the context. We're monitoring our behavior, monitoring impulses. We don't do all sorts of weird things in those settings, right? But when we're out to dinner or we're in a public park, uh, we're at a party. We have a looser mindset. So these mindsets actually are flexible, but we do tend to have a preference for, in general, mm-hmm. uh, whether we veer tighter or looser. And so understanding the match between one's mindset and one's context, whether it's organizations or family structures, and then thinking about where conflicts arise from those differences and how to negotiate them and manage them, even just labeling them as tight, loose conflicts can be really powerful to think about, okay, let me think about why my boss or my spouse or my friend is, you know, or a sibling is tight and I'm loose or vice versa. So and even within the same family, siblings can have different preferences, even though they've grown up in the same social environment in their, in their family. That's right. That's right. Actually, my kids, my two teenagers, took the tight, loose mindset quiz. Yes. And uh, one comes out as extraordinary. One's tight, loose. one's loose? <laughs> well, so and then... What does that say? Moderately tight. But earlier we concluded that this is uh, a primarily learned, uh, you know, uh, social identity and, and way of viewing the world. But if if it's not the same among siblings, then part of it certainly, surely, must be innate as well. Well, it's partly also just different experiences that um, mm-hmm. and personality, like you know, that maybe does have a heritable component. But there's. You know, in general, they're more similar than they are different. They don't mm-hmm. veer out on opposite ends of the continuum. Um, but I can say also, like, my spouse and I mm-hmm. uh, vary on tight loose, and we use the construct to negotiate our differences. Really? Including how messy one is, which is me, and even oh. <laughs> financial decision-making. Wait, so how did you work that out? <laughs> and how, did, how was your knowledge of tight and loose helpful to you, Michelle, in that uh, marital negotiation, let me call it? Well, I have to say that, first of all, when you can understand, you know, why your spouse might veer one way than another and talk about where mm-hmm. the origin of this helps people to empathize with each other's differences rather than just saying, oh, they're really crazy or they're, they're really annoying. So that's just mm-hmm. one issue is just understanding where these differences come from through, through our conversation. The other is I study negotiation and, the, you know, these kinds of issues are eminently negotiable. Like, for example, even in the domain of parenting, 
you know, a lot of parents, you know, want to be very tight because, you know, it's a scary world out there for their kids. But of course, you know, and I talk about this later in the book uh, on the Goldilocks principle, that it's good to have balance, even if you have to veer tighter or looser in the household for whatever reasons, like having balance is important. And then the question is, what's your priorities? Like The Goldilocks you know, principle, let me just uh, infer here, insert for those of you who don't know it, not too hot, not too cold, not too big, not too small, but just right in the middle there. That's right. I think that, you know, in our research, we can see that groups do tend to evolve to be tight or loose for good reasons. But the groups that get too extreme, mm. that are either way too loose and unpredictable and uncoordinated or way too tight, that is, that they're, you know, really repressive, they both have really big problems. They have, you know, much lower happiness. And that includes, you know, nations. It includes organizations that are getting either too tight or too loose. And like so, United was getting in terms of tightness, or Uber and mm-hmm. Tesla were getting with looseness. And even in our own families, like we were just, just talking about, parents who are either overly tight or overly loose um, tend to produce more maladaptive kids. And there's really nice research on that topic. So what, what can parents be thinking about? What, what, are the, what are the main ideas that you've gotten from your research on tight and loose that that inform the way parents think about the kind of uh, cultural environment in which their children are are coming up. So yeah, I, I want to just mention that you know families do vary on how much they require stronger rules. For example, in mm-hmm. our research, the working class um, parents um, show much higher tightness. Rules really are important in those contexts because um, these families are trying to avoid falling into hard living or poverty. They Mm. tend to be in occupations like manufacturing that are much more dangerous or they live in more dangerous Mm. areas. So there's certainly we evolve um, to be tight or loose for good reasons. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm in a middle upper class family and so I can afford to take risks and afford to break rules because I have a safety net. And so even within that context, you know, families do vary in terms of their need for rules and and structure. Um, but, you know, like you said, how do you think about how do you negotiate this? And that's where I think it's really exciting because, you know, you sh- we can sit down and say, what are the domains that we need to have rules for in our household? You know, for example, I have, I have my own list. You know, one is schoolwork. Another is um, language. And another is respectful treatment. And another is, um, you know, how mm-hmm. messy people are around the house. And you can think about all of these these kind of domains, and then discuss with your spouse, with your kids, which domains really need to be tight. What are our highest priorities where we need a lot of rules? But where can we give a little more slack? In my household, we give a lot of slack on messiness, actually, which Mm -hmm. probably annoys my husband to no end because he veers tighter. But, you know, we sort of said, look, the most important priorities in our case that we negotiated were working hard in school, treating each other with respect, even language, we kind of have a little slack on. <laughs> Maybe that's really? from New York, you know. And <laughs> so, but you know, the, the point is that you know you can really once you have the tight loose lens, you can start applying it in your everyday life and actively engage in negotiating these kinds of differences. And organizations too, uh, you know, really need to think through which domains need to be tight, especially those organizations that start getting too tight or too loose. What what have you found most personally meaningful in terms of the insights you've gained from your years of research studying cultural differences? Um, well, I would say 
that um, one of the insights is that once we understand those differences, we can negotiate them. We were talking about that a little bit before the break. Mm-hmm. Um, even, for example, you mentioned weddings. I would nominate vacations as another really important context where a tight loose conflict uh, really uh, can really make or break vacations. I go on big family vacations where some family members veer tighter. They like order. They like structure. Others are looser. They like spontaneity. They don't like a lot of planning. Uh-huh. And again, like these so this is with, a lot of problems. This is with members of your uh, extended family? Yeah, yeah, like my uh, whole family. I mean, it, it can be something that if we don't understand where these differences come from, we can be very judgmental. And again, once we understand them, we can start negotiating them. Okay. Okay. So you know, have we, you actually done that? Like <laughs> brought, to the, brought to the surface, okay, there's a tight preference and a loose preference. How are we going to manage that? Yeah. Exactly. Like, okay, you know, we're really messy or we're really late and we're really spontaneous, but we're only going to do this during these times. And it's really important to you to have punctuality and to have order Mm -hmm. and structure. Um, You know, part of it is also recognizing the strengths that people bring to the table in terms of tight and loose. Even, let's say, in organizations, you know, when we think about something as basic as innovation, it involves both tight and loose. And it involves looseness because looseness is associated with creativity with adaptability, but it also involves tightness and a tight mindset where once you come up with great ideas, you have to implement them. And and we need both mindsets often to accomplish really complicated tasks. So in a context of organizations, leaders, and I talk about this in the book, borrowing from Tushman's construct of ambidexterity, leaders who are ambidextrous, who can help groups to be both tight and loose when they need to be, um, are really the most successful in organizations. Hmm. So how so do you know? How do you know if you're if you're doing that? Whether it's uh, in your in your organization or in your home or in your community. Well, you know, part of it is diagnosing when contexts are getting too loose or too tight. How would you know? What, what, what's a method that somebody might use for being able to do that? Let's say a small business owner or a parent. Well, sure. When you're when you're looking at an organization that's getting too chaotic and things are unpredictable, you're missing deadlines, you know, you're missing production levels, then you can start thinking maybe we're veering too loose. I mean, I've written some about Tesla on this sense. It's a loose organization. It should be. It's in a startup, high-tech type of context. But on the flip side, you know, in, when you can start thinking about are we getting too tight, you used to look at places like United that were arguably getting too tight, where people were following the rules almost blindly. Uh, of course, you need more rules in those contexts. We don't want people making up all sorts of rules. It's a very uh, threatening, high-safety-focused mm-hmm. culture. Mm-hmm. But we can start thinking, okay, in the case of getting too tight, maybe we can introduce some flexibility or discretion into non-safety domains. Uh, for example, in mean? customer service, United now has a nice advertisement about, well, we can give our um, flight attendants and our customer service personnel some discretion in context where it's not going to affect safety. Mm-hmm. Uh, I call this, by the way, flexible tightness. It's where you have a tight culture and you need it, but you introduce some discretion uh, mindfully into and, the system. And, and when you say mindfully, by that I take it you mean thoughtfully looking to see where do we need to have the kind of strictness and adherence to rules in, you know, for, our, for our survival and our continued success, and where can we create more flexibility? That's right. And you know, it's, it's not like a simple recipe. I, I interviewed some people in some manufacturing firms that were trying to loosen up to be more competitive and innovative, and they kind of started with a very tight system 
And then they kind of went almost the opposite to extremely loose. And people didn't like that. They wanted some structure. They wanted some discretion. Um, you know, on the flip side, if an organization is getting too chaotic and it's getting too unstructured, then we have to introduce some structure into that looseness. Mm-hmm. So I call that structured looseness. We've got to find places where we can have more monitoring and more deadlines without infringing on the autonomy that people really cherish and need in those contexts. Look, can you give an example of, of, of uh, that kind of move, that intentional shift to um, more structure in a loose environment? Yeah, this is a case where you have, you know, context where people um, come, let's say, from research and development into a company like a manufacturing firm, and they're used to having a lot of flexibility and very few deadlines and waiting until the, you know, the feeling is that the product is perfect. And then, you know, that causes a lot of problems and stress in those tight systems. So mm-hmm. what, what people have done that I've interviewed to manage those kinds of conflicts is to try to say, okay, guys, let's have a little bit more monitoring, a little more feedback, a little more accountability so that we can try to create some kind of balance. Mm-hmm. So balance is really the, the goal, not too extreme on, on either side. That's right. I mean, it's interesting. Even now I'm working with the Navy um, where, you know, this is, again, you need a tight ship in, in many cases. But the question is, and this is something we're studying now, is, you know, how can leaders help to loosen some aspects of that lifestyle so that people have some autonomy? Hmm. So it's not something that is, you know, a simple here's what you do, but we try to think about the constructs and then think about the life so where on a Navy ship would you introduce uh, or do you see in this research program uh, opportunities for greater flexibility in, in a tight ship environment? Yeah, I think in this kind of context, like in other military contexts, you can have a goal but have some flexibility in how you reach that goal. Give people some more discretion and, and, and creativity and license to reach the goal as long as that's being communicated. Um, often it's the case that we start normatizing so many things, including – for example, what you wear and your haircut and your sock color. <laughs> you know, these mm-hmm. are things that what my understanding in interviews with the military is that people feel like if you're abiding by those rules, even if they're not really that necessary, that you'll abide by the super important rules on the battlefield or on the ship. And that's something that we have to kind of question is that maybe we don't need rules in all those kinds of domains. Mm. We can kind of selectively think about which ones can we give up a little bit on. You mean like uh, uniforms? Like, um, I would say more of like very detailed, you know, haircut lengths and, mm-hmm. um, you know, other kind of grooming hmm. types of issues that you have to say, is this really necessary? I, as I mentioned in my household, of course I would love my kids to be neat. But, you know. But wait, one, hold on, I Michelle. Say, okay. I, thought, I thought you said that you were the messy one. I am, and they are too. <laughs> oh. And that's the idea so wait. that. We, we can let is, go of that domain in terms of tightness. So my husband leans tighter, but we negotiated to be allow for a lot more latitude in that. Why okay. is it then that, okay, so y- you persuaded him somehow, <laughs> or maybe your kids did? Well, I think that what we did was we prioritized domains that are important. So for him, mm-hmm. you know, having more punctuality is important. He's a lawyer. You know, he is operating all the time on a sort of clock. Right. So having people be ready to go on time to mm-hmm. him is really important. To me, it's not important. But to me, it's okay to negotiate your high and low priorities, and mm-hmm. that's an important thing for him. Um, I see. So it's really about negotiations. It's not about getting everything, of course, that you want. It's about identifying in these domains, 
like schoolwork to me is super important. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's something we can agree upon. Uh, we can agree that norms for respect are really important. My kids mm-hmm. once told me that they learned that if they are not nice to each other, that I would be really upset. So like that they, it's not as though we even had to tell them that's the case, but mm-hmm. they could they learn that. deduce that. And they learned that when they, when they were earlier than three and before they had language, no <laughs> doubt. So uh, let's get back to weddings, shall we? <laughs> uh, so there you've got two cultures coming together, right? Two family communities. Um, what advice do you have for those people who are getting married or part of a, I mean, this is a lot of people out there listening right now are part of uh, either they've just been married or they're getting married or they're thinking about it, their families are coming together. What does your research tell us about the union of cultures, the mergers of cultures as they occur in a wedding? Well, I mean, the wedding metaphor is, is very similar to the merger metaphor we talked right. about with Daimler Chrysler. You know, often... You know, we sort of have this honeymoon period where, you know, this marriage seems like it's made in heaven. But, again, if we don't understand these deeper cultural templates of how we lean tight or loose, just like in, a, in an organizational merger, in a family merger, you can have, you know, conflicts that arise based on tight, loose that would be, you know, with the language and the, and the knowledge of it, we can better deal with those conflicts mm. downstream. I think many of us, especially when we become parents, we have absolutely no idea how our orientation toward rules is going to affect our parenting. And I think, you know, that's one domain that, you know, you just don't know. Like, what domains does your spouse want to be tight and loose in? And what, mm. what's your preferences? And hmm. maybe, I mean, you don't need to talk about that on your honeymoon, per se. But <laughs> it's good to, before you become a parent, to mm. start thinking about that. Because, you know, some parents are helicopter-like. They feel more safety in having a lot of rules. Other parents are more laissez-faire. And that can drive each other crazy. And hmm. same with marriages on financial issues. This is also has some you know, connection to tight and loose in terms of risk aversion and risk-seeking. And when it comes to finances, it's important to kind of think through our preferences on these tight, loose issues and think about strategies um, to negotiate those issues. As I mentioned, and it also make, comes up with vacations. And, to, make the, to make more important those that really are important. And, and that, of course, requires dialogue. And I think you know the big idea that that I I, I hear in in your work and and what you said was most personally important to you in understanding these ideas, is um, is is stepping back to to see or really to try to grasp the sources of different kinds of mindsets, uh, and to see why someone would have a tight or a loose mindset because that really opens the door. Uh, the doors for for better mutual understanding, cooperation, and and the possibility for negotiating uh, a, a way to go forward together on some common ground. Yeah, that's exactly right. Actually, on my website, I have a place where people can send me stories about tight loose, and I've gotten so many inspiring and interesting stories around this. You know, one couple who wrote in and said, you know, we understand now why we have such differences in our approach to finances, because when one of the person in the couple was growing up, mm-hmm. there was a lot of problems financially mm-hmm. um, with bankruptcy, and, and the other partner didn't have those kinds of issues. And when, that's not the only driver of tightness, but mm-hmm. it, it's one very important thing that can help sure. us understand where it comes from. Religion is another one. Um, social class is another one. Gender is also another one. In the book, mm-hmm. I talk about how 
women minorities tend to live in tighter worlds. Um, they tend to be in context, uh, this applies more generally to power and status, um, mm-hmm. where they're held to standards or higher punishments for the same behavior. So hmm. in organizations, uh, actually, we've published a paper uh, about the Betty Dukes case some years ago, where you know the idea was that the same deviant behavior might be seen very differently in organizations depending on your status. And, and we found that women minorities were penalized much more for the same deviant types of behaviors, the same rule-breaking behaviors. Of course, we're not endorsing rule-breaking, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, but we're also saying that sometimes we need to be very mindful of how we might be letting some people off the hook based on their status, meaning that they're living in looser worlds. Hmm. So, so again, it's it's better understanding of the of the social and cultural contexts in which people have lived uh, that that gives you uh, a clearer view of their reality, why they're doing what they're doing, and perhaps a more compassionate response. Yeah, I think, you know, also I would just broaden out and say this also applies to politics and applies to societal issues mm-hmm. that I know are important among your listeners. And, you know, I think in this very partisan, divided time, this principle can also help us to understand our differences. Before the Trump election, we measured how threatened people felt, whether it's real or it's imagined. Uh, and we found that people who felt very threatened felt the U.S. was too loose, and that was driving a lot of their vote for Trump. We found the same thing in France, the same exact pattern. And the idea is that, you know, some groups are objectively more threatened in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, they're experiencing, as Thomas Freeman would say, many more disruptions, the working class. Mm-hmm. As a culture, we don't have a lot of standardized practices to help people to navigate those times like they do in Germany, for example, I write about in the book. So it's important, you know, threat can be objective, but it can also be subjective and, 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 and perceived. And I think that's one implication is we have to use the contract to kind of diagnose um, and understand why some groups are threatened, how mm-hmm. they feel um, threatened that might be uh, fake or maybe imagined. In other cases, because that, in my research, has the same um, psychology. When we bring people into my lab and we activate threat, whether it's about terrorism or natural disasters or pathogens, it produces tight mindsets pretty quickly. Right. So there's so, a fear that as, for example, uh, David Wallace-Wells has written recently about uh, you know, the, the climate crisis that we are currently experiencing, and one of the concerns that he identifies drawing on, you know, lo- the current science uh, is is the the rise in authoritarianism mm-hmm. uh, as a response to massive disruptions uh, from flooding, uh, from from That's heat, right. drought, uh, and 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 all the other disasters uh, that we're starting to see. Uh, so, does your research? help to inform what we can be doing uh, to to create greater cooperation in response to these uh, these these threats and yeah. and and what we can do to sort of minimize the the speed with which we flip to uh, authoritarian responses yeah that's right I mean that tendency to want autocratic leaders to, under times of threat is very much um, part of the tight loose evolutionary um, principles that we've been studying, that when you have objective threat, you need yeah. stronger rules and leaders. And 
or actually in our research, we could see tight cultures prefer autocratic leaders or independent leaders. Mm -hmm. And it's simple logic. They can act quickly and so forth. Like you said, it's really about differentiating real and perceived threat. That's one of the biggest problems that we have as, as a world these days is to try to differentiate what is real. We're far less threatened, um, as Steven Pinker would say, in a lot of ways. Um, and yet we feel more threatened in part because of a lot of social media. Mm. So I think differentiating real and, and, and object and fake that it's very important, including, for example, immigration. We, there's some research on how just incredibly distorted our views are about immigration actual perceived number of immigrants, where people are coming from, what kind of jobs they're taking. These are all things that are highly distorted in many countries. We're studying this here in the U.S. now. Um, when it comes to though climate change, I think, you know, I have kind of an optimistic view. I'm hoping that when I write about in the book, there are examples of cultures that are coming together mm -hmm. um, to, to actually help coordinate and cooperate in these contexts, um, and they have the benefit of that kind of coordination, but also of empathy and openness. Bangladesh and India, there's some examples. Turkey and Greece coming together mm -hmm. to try to unite to deal with collective challenges. And, you know, as a species, we're ultra-cooperative, and the hope is that, you know, we will become even more cooperative under these contexts. Um, we have to, right? I, and is this what you mean uh, by harnessing the power of social norms, as you uh, as you describe in the final chapter of the book? Yeah, that's right. I think what's exciting is that we invented social norms. You know, we, we perfected these mm -hmm. this incredibly important aspect of human sociality. And I think the trick now is to think about collectively what context do we need to tighten up that are becoming too loose. Mm -hmm. uh, the example I give in the book is the Internet, um, because it's got great advantages and efficiencies mm -hmm. and connectivity, but it's really an ultra-loose ultra place, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. where anything goes. And psychologists would say, look, when you're not being monitored, when there's no social presence, and, well, you know, let's face it, we're living in this world now, it produces all sorts of anti-normative, you know, strange behavior. And we are, we are now the pendulum is starting to swing back for sure in terms of greater strictness or, or adherence to some kinds of uh, norms and rules in that wild and woolly space. <laughs> Let me ask great. you a question I've been asking everyone this year, uh, and the year of accountability as I'm trying to think about it. Uh, what, what do you do, if anything, to hold yourself accountable for living and working in accord with your core values? 30 seconds. I think it's about making those pledges to other people. You know, in a sense, it's being it's helping to create some monitoring and and systems where you're being evaluated. Accountability, uh, defined by psychologists, is about being monitored, and being evaluated, and being compensated for your behavior. Mm -hmm. And so, if you develop systems where you say, "This is who I want to be," mm -hmm. and these are my values, and this mm -hmm. is what I want to do, but you make it public to your friends, to your family, to your students, then it helps you to maintain those kinds of standards. Indeed. That's a great insight. Thank you, Michelle. And thank you so much for joining me in this conversation and our listeners. Where's the best place for people to find out more about your wonderful work and about the book? Thanks so much. Um, my website, michellegelfand.com. And I would love to hear stories from your listeners. It's really, that's why I wrote this book. I wanted to get outside of like the academic context to, to learn more about how this is affecting people's everyday lives. It will inform the research we do. I mean, it's a really great synergy to kind of get out there and your ideas. And we already decided, we already started designing research around stories that people have been telling us. 
So if you could, in just one sentence, put uh, boil down what you, you're hoping our listeners take away as we, as we say farewell, what's the, the one big idea that you want to make sure people what know? What I'm hoping is I wrote this book to kind of help give a new lens with which one can see the world, whether it's in your household, with your interactions with your siblings, in your workplaces, how you interpret the news. I think that this distinction of tight loose can really help us to kind of feel that the world is a lot less crazy of a place Mm -hmm. and that it's more understandable, it's more predictable based on these dynamics, Mm -hmm. um, and then to actively negotiate them. Thank you. That's that's a great idea. It's a really important one in our world today. Michelle Gelfand, thanks so much. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Michelle Gelfand and that it provoked your thinking about whether you veer toward a tight or loose mindset and whether you're working in an organization that's a good fit for your tight, loose orientation. So here is a challenge for you, an invitation. Can you talk to somebody you know, someone in your circle, maybe it's at home, maybe it's at work, in your community, maybe it's a friend, about your tight, loose bent, and then figure out, negotiate some new way to prioritize what is really important while respecting, really valuing the tight, loose orientation of the other person. Is messiness really an important stumbling block to your cooperation, your collaboration? Is punctuality a make-or-break issue? Really? How does your thinking about your cultural orientation and that of others help you to see your relationships differently, perhaps with greater compassion and opportunity for mutual understanding about the common ground you're walking on together? I'd love to hear from you, so email me, Friedman at Wharton.upenn.edu or find me on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 132, Business Radio Powered by Wharton. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. For more about today's guest and about previous guests, go to workandlifepodcast.com. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, visit totalleadership.org and check out my book, Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, Have a Richer Life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, rate it on iTunes, and share it with your friends, your family, and your coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.